Father, we pray that you would speak to us in a living and active way through your word now. And we pray that you would make your word effective in the ways that you tell us that your word is. I pray that that you would cause your word now to be a light to our feet, uh, a lamp to our path, cause your word to be something that teaches us and reproves us and trains us in righteousness and equips us for every good work. Work through your word to make us wise for salvation in Christ. I pray that, that you would shepherd your sheep and also call the lost to you through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We've made it to chapter 8, left off in verse 1 last week. We'll begin this week in verse 2. And in this passage of Scripture, the Spirit is speaking through King Solomon to give us wisdom, especially in how we should relate to our earthly authorities. Our governing authorities are especially in view here, but we can rightly apply the wisdom of this passage to the way we should relate to any authority that God has placed over us, not not just the leaders of our nation or state or cities, but also those who have charge in our workplaces and churches and homes. Now, authority is good as God designed it. It, it, It's not biblical to have a fundamentally negative view of authority. It is a great blessing to be under competent, godly leadership. Now, if you've heard any of our prior sermons on Ecclesiastes, you can probably guess this passage is not just going to talk about relating to human authorities when everything is going well and working like it should. No. Uh, That's not real life here under the sun most of the time. Because as... Verse 20 of chapter 7 told us all people are sinful, and that includes people in positions of authority. Now, this topic is not only important for some people who have certain situations or certain interests. How we relate to authorities is part of all of our everyday lives. It's a very significant part of what it means to live wisely in the world. So you need God's wisdom about this, especially because man's sinfulness means the wisest way to relate to your authorities is not always clear-cut, not always easy. And so to meet our need in the first half of this chapter, God gives us some specific counsel concerning authorities, some specific counsel concerning authorities, our first point. Look at verse 2. I say... Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. So the basic posture we should have towards authority is obedience. God calls us to be, as much as we can be, law-abiding citizens, compliant employees, leadable churchmen, obedient children, submissive wives, And so on. And this obedience that we offer our authorities on earth, it's an obligation that we have 
to our God in heaven. The second half of verse 2, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, your Bible might say something like, because of the oath you made before God. So the original Hebrew just says, because of the oath of God. Well, that could refer to an oath made to God or an oath made by God. Actually, though, on both readings, uh, the, the basic idea would be the same, saying how we relate to our authorities is not just something that's between us and them. It's between us and God. And this is just all over the Scriptures. Romans 13, 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. 1 Peter 2, 13, Mike read earlier, Be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. The way we relate to our government is a religious duty for us. The way you relate to your boss at work is a religious duty for you. It's part of the reasonable worship that you offer God. The, children, the way you relate to your parents who are raising you, it is part of your walk with God. The book of Titus teaches us that this is one way Christians show that they've been saved. Titus 3, verse 1, remind them, Christians, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, including rulers and authorities, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That includes rulers and authorities. For, here's the reason we should treat our authorities like that and all people. For we ourselves were once, pre-salvation, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So God's saving mercy and his goodness and kindness that he gives us in Christ, it transforms us, and it's meant to transform the way we relate to rulers and authorities, to make us submissive and obedient and gentle and meek and careful not to speak evil and eager to do good. In Titus 3, says, Christian, remember that this is part of the way that you are to adorn the gospel of our salvation. Now remember also, we're reading this in the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is not a book of law, per se. It's a book of wisdom, which indicates this holy obligation we have to our authorities. It's not just what is required of us, but it's also what is good for us. It's what is wise. This is the way of wisdom, even in a world corrupted by sin. But also, because the world is corrupted by sin, obey is not the only counsel that we need to know how we should relate to our authorities on earth. So we read in verse 3, Do not be hasty to go from the king's presence. 
Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. Okay, there are two commands in this verse. Did you see that? They go together. On the one hand, you, you should not be quick to walk away from the authority. But on the other hand, there is a time that you must. And should not keep standing there, taking your stand, if that would mean you join in an evil cause by doing so. So, so in this context, leaving the king's presence, that was a sign of disloyalty, of, of resisting the king's authority. Think about it. You're, you're not waiting to be dismissed by him. You're not standing ready to receive more orders from him. But when verse 3 says, don't be hasty to do that, it's indicating that sometimes you should, slowly. When? When remaining in subjection would implicate you in evil, as verse 3 also said. Why? Well, because the wisdom of this verse is based on the wisdom of the prior verse. You obey the authority because of your obligation to God. So if obeying God is the ultimate reason for your obedience to the earthly authority, then of course, if any earthly authority would ever require you to disobey God, you can't do that. Now, verse 3 wisely warns us we all, we all are naturally bent toward rebellion and unsubmissiveness. So verse 3 warns us, don't be trigger happy to pull that card. Be slow to show disrespect or disobedience. Don't be primed and ready for that. Be patient and persevering in your obedience. Even if the authority over you is being difficult or is not making wise decisions, a you know, cross-reference for that would be Ecclesiastes 10.4 which says, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, don't leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So, so don't storm out just because you don't like your authority's ideas or attitudes. Be uncompromising when sin and evil is the issue. Be long-suffering. When it isn't. Now, a very practical reason for this counsel was given at the end of verse 3. It said, do, do this for he, the king, does whatever he pleases. And verse 4 adds to this idea. Verse 4, for the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Okay, people in charge are in charge. Authorities have authority. That's what the verse is saying. This is one reason why it's not wise for you to be hasty to go from the king's presence. This is one reason it's not wise for you to take your stand in an evil cause with him, to join in that. This reason applies to both commands of verse 3. Okay? So it's not wise to stick around if an authority is set on doing evil and trying to rope you into it especially if their authority is like this king, so absolute that they can't really be opposed or challenged, well, who's, who's going to stop them then? Leave if you can. Or, or from another angle, uh, this Hebrew word translated evil in verse 3, it's actually it's a broad word that, that can refer to personal wrongdoing that you commit. It can also refer to personal suffering that you receive. And it does even later in this passage. For example, down in verse 9, the end of verse 9 speaks of 
those men who have power over other men to his hurt, to his harm. Well, that's the same word translated evil here in verse 3. Don't, don't take your stand in an evil cause, or it could be in a hurtful cause, in a harmful cause. So from that angle, the verse would be saying something like, like don't tarry in a bad situation. If possible, remembering that that authority has power to carry out those plans for your harm. Uh, Proverbs 27.12 says, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Now, here, here's another way that the note about the king's power grounds the prior commands. Okay, don't rush to defy an authority just when something they do displeases you because, well, that probably won't go well with you. They, they can do something about it. And so verse 5 then of the passage adds, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. No harm will come to them. Uh, Romans 13, Paul affirms this passage about governing authorities I read from earlier. Romans 13, rulers are not a terror to, do good, to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Now, of course, that's not always and without exception true. And that's not what the Bible is claiming. But that is true, uh, generally speaking. The king's word is supreme. Authorities have authority. And so wisdom says, keep their commands. Don't be hasty to challenge or defy them unless your obligation to God or a rescue from your own harm says that you should. Now, as we keep reading the passage, we see that this doesn't mean that you never challenge or you never make your displeasure or disagreement known. But, but wisdom does require that you consider how you might accomplish the most good from your efforts. That, that's what the rest of verse 5 is saying, as well as verse 6. So look again at verse 5. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. Verse 6, for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. So much wisdom here. Even if you're troubled, even heavily troubled, perhaps by some foolish authority over you, but don't be rash in your response. The wise heart knows the right time to make an appeal or an escape and also the right way to go about it. You, you consider carefully when and how you might have the greatest likelihood of influencing the authority or the smallest likelihood of, of suffering personal harm. All right, as an example of this, think about the book of Esther. If you've read the book of Esther, she had to break the law about approaching the king, and then she had to challenge the king's law, his edict against the Jews. How did she do this? Well, she gave serious thought to, to the right time and way that she might do this. I mean, it, it required great boldness of her. It required great faith in God. But she didn't just show great boldness and great faith in God. She also showed a kind of shrewdness that considered the time and the way. And the Spirit is, is saying, that's wise. You should do that too in the way you deal with your authorities. 
But still, all, all the shrewdness in the world, right, that won't guarantee success in, in appealing to earthly authorities. Just as Esther had to resolve, she considered the time and way, but still had to say, if I perish, I perish. Verse 7 teaches us we have to confess something similar. Verse 7, for he, as all people, every man, does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? It starts with the word for, so this is part of the reason Solomon said what he did at the end of verse 6. Man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he doesn't know what is to be. So we try to consider what's the wisest time and way to do things, to, to relate to bad authorities, but we can't know how things will turn out. And that troubles us. Because the proper time and way is not always clear to us. No one can tell us how it will go if we do things at this time and in this way as opposed to that time and that way. And that's why we must trust in God and fear Him ultimately. Not in our wisdom, not in our shrewdness, not, not even trusting in our own integrity, but in God whose authority reigns over every authority. God knows what man cannot know, what will be. And God has power that no man has. And that's what we're reminded of next in verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit or, or the wind. This could be translated. Or power over the day of death. No man. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. So just as no one can reign in the wind, so also no one reigns over the day of their death. Try to stop the wind. You can't. Try to stop the day of your death. You can't. Even the king whose word is supreme, he can't. Even the man who won't let anyone question his authority and say to him, what are you doing? He has no power over the day of death. And then the second half of the verse gave two more examples, illustrations of things outside of man's control. A soldier can't dismiss himself from battle and then just decide that the war is over for himself. He doesn't have that power. And also, wickedness will never give anyone the power to be delivered from ultimate harm, from death. Now, some think these two statements especially illustrate, or are meant to illustrate the statement before it about the day of our death. So, so as one man put it on that reading, that death is a battle we can't escape. And we can't cheat our way out of it by wickedness. No man has power over the day of death. Now, I think Solomon means that to be encouraging. Consider again this verse in the context. It is about dealing with our authorities on earth who have power over others. And they may sometimes use those powers to harm others. As, as the next verse makes explicit, verse 9, Solomon said, All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Well, in a world where things like that happening, that happens, it is comforting to know and to remember that no man has power over the day of death. No one can take away from you any of the days. God has ordained for you. Jesus modeled this kind of confidence. Do you remember when he stood before Pilate 
And Pilate claimed to have power over the day of Jesus' death. He said, don't you know I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus corrected him. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. You, you can use your authority to sentence me to death only if it is my good Father's will for me to die this day. And Jesus knew that it was, that his hour had come, the hour appointed by the Father, and so it happened. He died as our substitute, as our ransom. Earlier in his life, Jesus made an amazing claim. He said that he had, with God the Father, divine authority over death. John 10, 18, he said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. A thousand years after Solomon, there was a man who claimed to have power over the day of death. And he proved that he did because he took his own life up again after he laid his life down. That's the ultimate comfort when underneath bad authorities. When, when you look around today, you're, you're going to see the same things that Solomon saw Way back when, Ecclesiastes teaches us there's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes will, will be applicable to the end of the age. You're, you're going to see, just like he did, men exercising authority over other men to their hurt. But you can't just focus on that. You also need to turn your eyes to that man who has divine power over the day of death. You need to look at the empty tomb of Jesus. You need to see his ascension and him seated at the right hand of the Father and that he there is exercising all authority, authority over our lives and our deaths. And all of your earthly authorities are either his servants or his footstool. And he has said that he will raise you up if you are his. Now, you trust in Christ, but you still, while doing that, need this wisdom of Ecclesiastes in how you relate to, to all earthly authorities, okay? So, so be wise, be shrewd, obey authorities, be patient and long-suffering in that, but, but refuse to submit to any sin, escape danger if you can. Consider what might be the proper time and way for everything. But, but all the while you do that, you remember and believe that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. And he has made us his kingdom after freeing us from our sins by his blood because he loves us. If, if you are lost today, I appeal to you with his authority to receive this great gift of his death, to entrust yourself to him. Call him Lord and you will be delivered. Uh, verse 8 said, Wickedness cannot deliver those who are given to it. But the gospel says Jesus can deliver you from your wickedness and all its consequences, death, judgment, misery, emptiness, alienation from God, and he will surely do it if you come to him. Now, verse 10 begins the second major section of this chapter. Uh, it addresses head-on 
some disorienting difficulties that come from bad uses of authorities. We, we will see here some of the horrors that can happen when authorities rule badly. But what you're going to see is when Scripture takes us deeper into the darkness of these hard realities of life under the sun, it's not going to keep giving us specific counsel concerning authorities. This is amazing to me. What the Spirit knows we need to be able to deal with all these things is to hear again the basic points of this book that we've already been told several times before. That's the second main point of this Scripture. We've heard specific counsel concerning authorities. Now we hear the same counsel that always applies. Verse 10 establishes further our need for this counsel. Because under the sun, things like this happen. Verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Now when he says, I saw the wicked buried, he's not saying, I saw they got what they deserved. He's saying, I saw they got the opposite. I saw them honored in death. They, they are given proper burials, and people are praising them. Now, some translations, instead of saying they were praised, says they were forgotten in the city. And in that case, the idea is similar, is that the wicked are buried with unwarranted honor, and then like, peacefully forgotten. Even after they're gone, they're not reproached for the way that they lived. They're honored even though they did their wickedness right there in the city, verse 10 pointed out. So people knew. This was not an ignorance problem. The rulers of the city deliberately played like everything was fine, even as the wicked went in and out of the holy place. Solomon saw people keep up a life of wrongdoing and church going at the same time. And he saw the religious authorities and the municipal authorities let it keep happening. And so they kept comfortably coming to worship like nothing was wrong. And then the rulers praised them after they were gone. And th this failure to by authorities to do nothing in response to open wickedness. It has a really terrible effect. It cultivates more wickedness. Look at verse 11. It tells us this. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So sometimes the way that people with power hurt others is by not addressing evil. And then the hearts of those who are under their authority becomes more full of evil, the verse says, more fully resolved to carry it out. And this principle, it pertains to authorities, again, in, in lots of different spheres. You can see this happening in cities or nations that don't punish crime, in churches that turn a blind eye to sin, in organizations or companies with no real accountability, in homes with, with no real discipline. If you are in some position of authority over others, some position of, of leadership or charge, you should try to protect the hearts of the people who are under your care in this way by promptly sentencing wrongdoing. 
addressing it somehow. Otherwise, the hearts of those under your charge may become fully set on doing evil. King Solomon saw many authorities who failed like this. I, I think we see the same today. This verse proves true around us in, in many different ways. So the question is, you know, not just what should we do if we're in a position of authority, but, but how can we live in a world that's like this? Where evil abounds and, and it's fueled by people exercising authority to man's hurt in both active and, and passive ways, right? Perpetrating it and permitting it. And, and, and how do we deal with things like this in a world where there are gross violations of justice? Things like what's described in verse 14. Look at verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. What is the path of wisdom through the middle of a sea of injustice and wickedness that's aided by bad authorities? Well, you actually already know the path of wisdom through it. If you've read Ecclesiastes up to this point, you may not know that you already know the path. And so Solomon's going to tell us again. It's the same counsel that always applies. What, what are the two pillars of wisdom that this book has insisted on repeatedly? Fear God in everything you do. Find joy in everything God gives. The way to endure is what Ecclesiastes has taught us all along. The way of wisdom when you're under bad authorities, the way of wisdom when you see injustice prevailing, is the way of wisdom always. Fear God and enjoy His gifts. Now see it for yourself. Okay, look at how Scripture brings us back to these pillars again. Here in this context of injustice and authorities, look at verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will He prolong His days like a shadow because He does not fear before God. There's pillar one. Now look down at verse 15. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Wise counselors learn to repeat themselves because this same counsel always applies. And it seems, per this passage, that the more difficult the situation is, the more these basic pillars of wisdom are needed. Uh, wise King Solomon sees the need to say this again precisely when he starts to address some really difficult realities. I mean, verse 14, the verse in between these two pillars of wisdom, he described a reality that was so distressing, he cried out twice, this is vanity. The beginning of verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth. The righteous and wicked get what the other deserves. And then the end of the verse, I said that this also is vanity. And he is doubly distressed by this. 
the more disorienting and dark life under the sun becomes, the more you need to go back to the basics of what wisdom is. Sometimes we're tempted to believe the opposite, as if it's always the case that the more difficult a situation is, the more that we need new and specific insights regarding that particular struggle. And of course that can be helpful. And sometimes it's even necessary. But very often, more than half the battle in the darkest valleys is won by you remembering and doing the basic first principles of wise, faithful living. Things like fear God, enjoy His everyday gifts, walk with Christ. A joyful, God-fearing person will not be crushed by the weight of injustice and evil in the world. The wisest of the wise will even learn how to press these general truths that always apply down into the specifics and difficulties of a situation. And that's what the Spirit inspires Solomon to do here. So he doesn't just repeat these pillars of wisdom. He, he repeats them in ways that especially meet the need of those who would be troubled by injustices and authorities. Take a closer look to see this. Again in verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Okay, remember the context. The wicked sin publicly, but they still come to worship like everything's fine and they're praised. It, it seems like they're getting away with it. The children of men do evil, but a sentence against their deeds doesn't come. It seems like they got away with it. Or maybe the wicked come out even better than just getting away with it, and it happens to them according to the deeds of the righteous. Against all of that, in the middle of all of that, Solomon plants this flag of conviction. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and seems to get away with it every time, he says, yet I know it won't be well with them. It will be well with those who fear God. I see injustice abounding, yet I know justice is coming. And so I fear God because I know the, the, what the end of this book says. God will bring every deed into judgment. Every single one of those hundred things. God will bring into judgment, even every secret thing. It will be well with those who fear God. This is an anchor for your soul, this verse. This would be a wonderful verse to memorize for, for occasions like this. If you fear God, you can sing, it is well. You can sing, all will be well through anything. Now, now the end of verse 12 tells us why, and it might seem curious at first, why will it be well for those who fear God? Because they fear before Him. And you think, well, that's redundant. Is that adding anything? Well, look carefully. It's not just the same thing repeated. It will be well for those who fear God because they fear before Him. Or literally, because they fear before His face. Or in his presence. They reverence his presence with them. They consider the awesome reality of who God is. Fear him. 
while being deeply aware that they're doing that in his presence before him. This incomprehensibly great God of grace and justice that they revere is with them. They revere him before his face. So, so though a sinner prolong his life, you don't need to be moved, you don't need to despair if you fear God while mindful of his presence. And in that light, harmful human authorities are not nearly so fearsome. We live before his face, and so he sees, so we can rest. No one's getting away with anything. And this, even if someone prolongs their life by wrongdoing, that prolonged life is still not very long. We, we only have a few days here under the sun. See, see, this is why Proverbs 14, 26 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. The fear of the Lord doesn't make you wilt. It gives you strong confidence. As you live under bad authorities and you see injustice and wickedness and all kinds of other things, it is well with them because they trust that divine justice will be executed in the proper time and way. And it is well with them because the fear of God drives away the fear of harmful human authorities. And it is well with them because no heavy trouble can interrupt their communion with God. They revere Him before His face. But, verse 13, it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will He prolong His days like a shadow because He does not fear before God, before his presence, before his face. Those who set their heart on doing sin are not realizing, are suppressing the truth they know, or, or just are not bothered by the fact that every sin they commit against God, they do it to his face. We all live before the face of God. They don't fear before Him. And Romans 2 said that, that, that people who live like that are misinterpreting this delay in God's justice. Scripture tells us the purpose, one of the purposes of God delaying His justice is its mercy, its patience, its kindness desiring that, that sinners would repent and come to Christ and find His mercy. But those who don't respect who God really is in His justice and in His patience, they might interpret God's patient holding back judgment as if God is maybe like one of these bad human authorities who doesn't execute speedily a sentence against a, a, an evil deed. So maybe he, he's just not really the kind of God who does anything about evil. And they couldn't be more wrong about what God's purposes are. God's patience is meant to lead people to repentance. Friends, this verse would tell you, here's the path of wisdom through some of the darkest valleys that Ecclesiastes talks about. Fear before the face of God. And it will be well for you today and for unending days. For all of eternity. Now, now look again at this second pillar of wisdom in verse, ten, verse 15. Okay. To, to endure injustices and wrongful uses of power. 
In addition to the fear of the Lord, you, you also need to aim to find joy in all God gives you. Let, let's read verse 15 again. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So this, this fits, these two pillars of wisdom fit together. If you keep your eyes on eternity in the fear of God, that should free you to be able to focus on today's good gifts from God. If you know that in the future, God will address everything wrong around you right now, then you can be free to enjoy everything good that he is giving to you right now. See that? That's how you can bear up underneath distressing authorities and heavy troubles and lingering unfairness. Enjoy the everyday gifts of God, your daily bread, your daily work, your closest relationships. That is your lot. God is giving it to you. Be grateful for it. Take joy in it, every part of it. Whatever good gift God gives you under the sun. And, and this contented joyfulness with your lot God is giving you, that, that is the path of wisdom that, that's the opposite of what's described at the end of this chapter, verses 16 and 17. You were, you were supposed to enjoy the everyday gifts of God instead of doing what these verses tell you is impossible for you to do. Look at verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much he may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. You, you can't by your wisdom find out all the work of God, everything that God is doing, what all his purposes are. You can toil night and day, to try and find why God is working in the world like he is, allowing these injustices and abuses. But if you do that, you know what you won't be doing? Enjoying the good things he's giving you. Night and day. He gives us sleep at night. He gives us food, drink, work, and joy in the day. He has not given it to us to find out all his work, to, to be able to know the good purposes he has for doing and permitting all that he does. Don't chase what you'll never catch. Enjoy what you already have. Find joy in what God has given you. Verse 15 talks about even the days of your life that God gives you under the sun. And chapter 7 taught us some of those days God gives you will be days of adversity. Some of those days you may spend under ungodly authorities. Some of those days you may see or even experience great injustice. Most of these days God gives you under the sun will involve toil of some kind. But verse 15 says, joy can go with you through all these days. This is a great gift of God. This can be one of his everyday gifts to you. Joy going with you like a close companion through each day God gives you. And it will if you'll take the path of wisdom through your days, fearing before God and being content and grateful for his everyday gifts. 
Friends, don't sacrifice the joy that you can have by living wisely. For for the sake of fretting and pursuing answers that you can't find about God's particular purposes for particular injustices and authorities. Trying to peer into the, the mystery of God's providence, it won't help you live wisely. There's good news. There's a really practical alternative to that. Enjoy your dinner. Find joy in, in what you drink with it, in the work that you do tomorrow, in the people that God gives around you. Enjoy it all in the presence of God, seeing each one of them as a gift from Him, and enjoy it to His face for His glory. You see, in some sense, life is very hard to figure out. If we're asking, you know, why is God working like this? But, but in another sense, it's not that hard. If, if we're asking, what is the wise way for me to live through this? The answer is simple. Fear God. Find joy in His gifts. And you can do that if you will learn to trust that God does have a deep and wonderful why for every way that He's working in the world. Though, though we cannot now find it out and, and cannot ever find out the depths of it, who's known the mind of the Lord? But we can trust that he makes everything beautiful in its time. Ecclesiastes 3 told us, even the worst things. He does. Look again at this most painful reality Solomon described in this passage. Verse 14 this, this thing that caused him to be doubly distressed. There are righteous people, listen to this carefully, there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Well, let me ask you, does that describe a scenario that could never end up as something good and beautiful? Can that only describe an irredeemable injustice? Does it not also describe the glorious salvation God has worked for us by which we are redeemed? The perfectly righteous one received what was deserved for our deeds of wickedness. And we receive in exchange a share in what he deserves for his perfect deeds of righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. And amazingly, this great exchange, God has done in a way that upholds perfect justice, not violates it. Romans 3 explains that. Now, okay, I'm not saying that verse 14 is a prophecy about the gospel, because it's not. It's a lament over grave injustice in the world that Solomon saw. But, but I want you to think that these words describing a scene that is so terrible can also aptly describe the most beautiful thing that God ever did. How he saved us in Christ. And if you'll think about that, I want that to prove to you again that God's ways are higher and greater than yours, beyond your finding out, but but in a way that's far better and more beautiful than anything you could have come up with or imagined on your own. And so here then, As we look to the gospel, this is the most important pillar of wisdom for living well in this world of sin and injustice. 
It is to walk by faith in the righteous Savior, Jesus. Give Him all your sin and trust in His, gro- in his cross where it happened to Him according to your wicked deeds. Receive from Him the gift of His righteousness and trust that it will happen to you according to His deeds, giving you fellowship with God now and, and eternal life. And then you keep looking back to that great exchange, this beautiful good news of saving grace and justice, and, and let the gospel amaze you and encourage you to the point that it encourages you to give up the pointless, vexing quest to get to the bottom of God's purposes for all kinds of hard things in the world. The gospel can help you trust. God will make all things beautiful in its time. Give that up so you can get on with living well and living wisely in in the simple, clean fear of Him and in full enjoyment of all His good gifts each and every day that He gives them. God, help us to live this wise way. Thank you for telling us what it is. And thank you especially for the grace you give us in Christ where it it, it happened to him on the cross according to our deeds. And that you treat us now and forever in accordance with his. God, we agree with you. This, This is beautiful. That is wonderful. That is great beyond our finding out. You are great before, beyond our finding out. Help us to love you more because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.